3CR would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, the traditional owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR acknowledges that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. The show you're going to hear today is a little bit different to our usual Tuesday breakfast broadcasting. On Wednesday the 11th of November 2020, we were very lucky to have a panel facilitated, um, organised by Tuesday Breakfast and facilitated by George Maxwell, who long-time listeners will remember. The panel was in response to a proposal to criminalise coercive control in New South Wales, but more broadly across Australia. Uh, we decided to highlight abolitionist voices as they had been being silenced by mainstream media and 3CR obviously has a commitment to platforming the voices of those with lived experience and who are otherwise ignored or silenced um, in more traditional media domains. So we were very lucky to be joined by Tabitha Lean, Georgia Mantle and Monique Hamid and I hope you enjoy the panel. We'd love to hear what you think. Welcome to Safety for Who? Abolitionist Perspectives on Criminalising Coercive Control hosted by 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast. We'd like to recognise that it's NAIDOC week with the theme Always Was, Always Will Be and acknowledge the people who are not safe or able to join this conversation tonight, but whose voices should be heard. Those in custody, those on temporary visas, and people in harmful relationships. Just a content warning. So tonight isn't intended to go over experiences of coercive control in great detail, but it's likely things will come up about family violence and harm in relationships, and also ongoing colonial violence by the state, criminal justice system and police, So please take care of yourselves and feel free to tap out whenever you need. So for a bit of context on coercive control, in September 2020, a private member's bill was introduced into the New South Wales Parliament, which aims to criminalise coercive control. This follows the beginning of a campaign which started with an article in Mary Claire magazine, a campaign launched by big names such as White Ribbon Australia, Jess Hill, New South Wales Women's Legal Service, and better homes and gardens. Coercive control is described in the conversation as, and I quote, a term used to capture the ongoing nature of domestic violence, where the abuse is not always physical, but pervades a victim's daily life. It refers to a wide variety of abusive behaviours, including social, financial, psychological, and technology-facilitated abuse. It can also include isolating a partner from their friends and family, restricting their movements, using tracking devices on their phone and controlling their appearance and access to money. It has a devastating impact on victims' independence, well-being and safety. It is the most common risk factor leading up to an intimate partner homicide, end quote. Because apparently it needs to be said, we agree that coercive control is bad and needs to be stopped. We just don't think criminalisation is the way to go, and we're here tonight to imagine other possibilities. Given 3CR's commitment to providing a platform for community voices and lived experience and the clear intersections between abolitionist politics, structural racism and classism and intersectional feminism, campaigners with existing high profiles have not been included in this discussion. Lived experience and activism is expertise and that's why our guests are here tonight. 
We'd also like to recognise the many years of prison abolition organising and activism against the criminalisation of family violence. Our hope for this event is for our discussion to contribute to this ongoing conversation. And we'd also like to acknowledge that people experience coercive control in thousands of ways and that not all experiences will be represented here tonight. So that's enough from me for now. I'd like to welcome our guests, Tabitha Lean, Georgia Mantle and Monique Hamid. Thank you all for being here. And a question to get us going. Could you please uh, tell us a bit about yourselves and how you got to the politics you have today, perhaps starting with Tabitha? Yata, everyone. My name is Tabitha, as my ancestors know me, Gudin Minyan. I'm a Gunditjmara woman born and raised on Ghana Yurt, and I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people on whose land that I stand today. And I want to acknowledge my brothers and sisters sitting in cages in their own country this evening, as well as say happy neighbour to any mob that are tuning in today. I'm Gunditjmara, so my country stands in southwestern areas of the land they now call Victoria. And it's been a long time since I've been home on country, um, and country is calling me, but the state won't let me travel. So my spirit calls go unanswered and will do for a while. I'm a criminalised black woman who's uh, spent almost two years in Adelaide's prison for deviant women and a cumulative two years on home detention, and I'm still tethered to the state on parole, or as I like to call it, open-air prison. I have always been interested in prisons and abolishing prisons, perhaps not as aggressively as I am today. I used to volunteer in visitor centres providing outreach services to both people incarcerated and families visiting loved ones. And then I ended up on the other side of the fence. And for a long time, I was really sad. And then I just got really bloody angry. I was angry at the things that were happening to me, the things I was seeing, the black faces that I was seeing coming back and forth into prison. And I was just really angry at the state, angry at colonialism, and angry at the system for reducing me to a number. I became 177057. And even though I'm out in the community on parole, I still go by that number within the system. So anger is a really good emotion for me. And so my survival instincts kicked in and the fight came back. And the day I walked out of those prison gates, I looked back and I said I would be back, but not back behind the bars. I was going to go back and tear that place down brick by brick. So I'm black and my people have been fighting the enslaving and incarcerating of our people for 232 years. So we're not new to these politics, but we are true to them. So all of the work that I'm doing now, as you say, how I came to this place, is really just a continuation of the actants actions of the resistance movements of my ancestors. So it's by their grace that I do this work. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tabitha. Georgia, would you like to go next? Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Tabitha. Um, I would also like to acknowledge country. Today I'm joining from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and acknowledging the continual struggles of the um, Gadigal people and acknowledge the amazing triumphs of the Redfern community, especially, which I'm living right near and I'm privileged to work in, an incredibly strong black community that have led fights for land rights in this country and continue to struggle against colonisation. In terms of how I came to, I guess, be an abolitionist or be a student of abolition, um, 
I actually don't really have a, a clear-cut time. I think sometimes people say that, oh, it was this, it was this one thing, and it, and it changed them. Um, for me, I think it has been a subtle progression to these politics. Um, I think I was always interested in criminal justice, but from a very liberal perspective. And then I actually think part of what pushed me to seek out these alternatives that abolition provides was when harm was committed against myself and when I continued to see harm committed within my community. And I thought there has to be some other alternative than what we're being offered right now. And thankfully, there was this history of incredible, mainly black, indigenous women who had been writing about this, had been talking about this very thing for years before I was even born. And I was able to access these resources, these voices, and started to see abolition as that very thing that I was looking for. It was a way to sort of channel my optimism, my politics that is embedded in optimism, into this imagining of a better future. But in terms of also practical campaigns, I've been involved in um, campaigns based in Sydney against black deaths in custody for um, a few years now. And I think that was also one of the many things that also influenced the way I sort of viewed this system and attempts to reform it as ultimately futile. And so abolition was the thing that I identified as the chance to go beyond what we're already doing. Thanks, Georgia. And Monique? So my name's Monique. Um, I'm currently on Woiwurrung land, so I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and also acknowledge the ongoing fight against colonisation. In terms of what to share about who I am, um, I wrote some points, but it was such a good question to sit back and think, you know, what has really mattered in terms of what got me here to these politics. And I agree, I think it was a gradual thing for me. It didn't feel like a one particular moment. Um, but most of my role has been um, in training and facilitation, and I've done that through different volunteer work and also in paid work in the prevention sector um, for women's health and family violence. Um, and in my most recent role, I work as the training and volunteer coordinator at a service called WIRE, where I run a nine-week training where we train up support workers for the phone room. And a big part of that is talking about a lot of the issues that callers call in with, so um, family violence, family law, housing, um, mental health. And so it's felt really important to think about how to do that work within a prison abolitionist framework and put these issues into the larger context when we're talking about violence and why it occurs. So I guess that's what I'm doing now. In terms of how I got here, I think the politics I have today, I think a big part of it was the different community projects I was able to be a part of um, in my early 20s. And so shout out to Undercurrent Victoria. I feel like that had a huge impact on my politics, um, getting to run workshops in the western suburbs with high school students around healthy relationships and understanding what it meant to do that within the prison abolitionist framework was huge for me. Um, and as part of that time, I got to go to the Sisters Inside conference and I just got to meet a whole lot of people that were doing amazing, often unpaid community work because it was their lives and, um, you know, no one was going to pay them to do it, but it was about survival and really being so inspired by that work. And I think thinking about all of the things that have influenced me that I've read 
it's often the voices of black and indigenous women around the world who have been writing about abolition and what it means, um, as well as trans and gender diverse people, sex workers, drug users. I feel like these are the voices that are so centered in this kind of work. And they're, the, I guess, the activists and thinkers and organizers that have really influenced me over the last 10 years. Thanks, Monique. It's it's really um, it makes a lot of sense to hear each of you describe the kind of like the individual and the cultural and the identity experience kind of things that lead up to you getting to where you are today. And Monique, you mentioned the doing work within organisations and how to juggle prison abolition frameworks. And I think that's something that hopefully we'll get to discuss later in this in this conversation tonight. So we might jump to our next question. Police prisons and the criminal justice system generally have been said to reproduce patterns of violence against women and gendered violence. Would you agree with this? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to start having been in prison and involved with the police. And I think when people think about carceral violence, they think about sexual violence or physical violence between fellow prisoners. And, of course, that happens, but the grossest and largest and most ubiquitous type of violence is actually perpetrated by the agents of the carceral state, as well as structural violence by the system. Hell, even the architecture of prisons, courts and cells and watch houses contain violence by their very occupation on stolen and sacred lands. So when I think about the sort of violence of police, prisons and criminal justice systems, I think about the removal of your complete body autonomy, being told what to wear, what and when to eat, when to sleep, when to rise, when to walk, who to talk to, when you can shower, limiting your access to the outside world, isolating and exiling you from the people who care about you, monitoring your communication, not allowing you to cut your hair or alter your appearance in any way, stripping you against your will. And all of that sounds like an abusive relationship, right? And that's exactly what it is. I mean, I might have divorced an abusive husband, but I'm now very much in an abusive relationship, only this time it's with my captor, my abuser is the state. And I think that's obscene. And what's worse, the state state perpetrates this daily violence inflicted on my body, and it's done in the name of the broader public. I mean, this system oppresses, subjugates and brutalises me in the name of justice, your justice, to keep all of you safe from people like me. So... When I was inside, I didn't meet a single person inside who had not suffered at the hands of a man, whether that was child abuse, sex abuse, domestic violence, rape, sexual harassment. Every woman had suffered. And what we do is we take those women who are fought to rise every time they were knocked down and we put them in a cage and we replicate those violent relationships. And to be honest, I have never felt more unsafe in my life than when I'm trying to breathe in front of a cop or when I was standing in the docks at the Supreme Court watching on as a jury, supposedly a panel of my peers adjudicating my worth, and in the cells at the mercy of men emboldened by their arbitrary state powers. And so part of the reason that the prison industrial complex is so strong is that it's intertwined with and propped up by so many sectors and organisations. And I think, you know, that's... it's. It's all pervading. So this violence is continually perpetrated against women, yet here we are told that they're putting in place these legislations to protect them. What Tabitha said at the beginning there is really important as well, that um, police and prisons 
they don't just replicate gendered violence, they represent and are a source of colonial violence. And that's really important to remember. I think on stolen land, any system like prison, prison police and governments are acts of violence and continue acts of colonisation. I think also I can't speak to the experience of being incarcerated, but as someone who has suffered physical violence from the police, most often during protests, I can say that they absolutely do replicate very sort of stock standard ideas of violence against women, whether that be male police officers going out of their way to touch female protesters' breasts and arse and then commenting on female protesters' appearances as ways to humiliate and degrade us. They completely reproduce these patterns of abuse. And yet, where are we supposed to turn to? Because we're told that the police are where we go. We are suffering from this violence. So, yes, I think they absolutely produce that. I think if you look up the definition of coercive control, it is a pattern of acts, assault, threats or humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm or punish people. That is exactly what the prison system is set up to do. So I think they completely um, reproduces patterns of gendered and colonial violence and we need to start seeing prisons not as the answer to violence but as a site of violence themselves. Yeah, I guess just to echo what's already been said, I think the criminal justice system is sold as this way to keep us safe by this idea that we can control and remove this this idea of dangerous people or dangerousness and just put them in this other place so they can't hurt anyone. And there's this real logic that punishing people, kicking people out of community is the way that we're going to solve problems and so little evidence to show that that actually works and so much evidence to show that that actually increases harm. Um, for everyone, treats people as disposable um, and really works off this fear, this fear that you see um, coming up again and again, that there's something out there that we have to be afraid of. There's these people that we need to lock up that, you know, are based in these really old um, narratives, uh, racist narratives. And so when you look at who's actually incarcerated, like has been mentioned, there's an overrepresentation of particular groups. Um, we've all seen some of these statistics around you know, the percentage of incarcerated people that are Aboriginal, Aboriginal children. There's a particularly shocking statistic that says Aboriginal kids are 6% of the population, but 60% of the prison population. And I feel, you know, different ways about quoting those stats because it's people we're talking about, not statistics. But I think there's this real um, effort to try and get people to understand, like, who's actually being targeted by these laws? Who are the people that end up in prisons? And as was mentioned, a lot of women who are incarcerated have experienced violence themselves um, and have then been further criminalised when trying to keep themselves safe or seek support. Uh, I think in the US there was a statistic that it's around 90% of women in prison who are survivors of domestic violence, and I don't know what that would be in Australia, but I'm suspecting that it's also incredibly high. A stat came out recently that said 37% of the Victorian prison population are remandees, which means that you know, they haven't even received sentencing. And that's such that's doubled in the last five years. So, you know, I think when you look at these statistics, it becomes really clear that the people inside prisons are not uh, more dangerous than the people outside prisons. That's not how it's actually working in practice, and it's not how it's been designed to work. And I often think about, you know, what would it actually look like if you locked up the most dangerous people 
you know, if you could even find who those people were, the people who are causing the most harm, despite the rise in criminalisation of certain behaviours. You know, if you're wealthy and white, you're not going to get criminalised for your drug use or it's highly unlikely that you will. So, um, you know, certain people are kept safe throughout this and it's the same communities that get targeted. And I guess as my last point, I wanted to talk about what it looks like in the phone room when we talk about these sorts of things. And when people call us, they'll often talk about their interactions with police and the prison system. Um, And there's so many reasons that people feel uncomfortable or unwilling to contact the police, despite there being often a really huge onus on on the individual to contact police in crisis situations. That's often what they'll be told to do by crisis services is the first thing. I've spoken to people on temporary visas who are really scared of involving the police because it will they're scared it will lead to their visas not being renewed or deportation. It could be that their partner or themselves are trans and they're fearful that involving the police will lead them to experience further violence or transphobia. Or if you're experiencing or your partner's experiencing psychosis and what it will mean to involve the police in that situation, will it actually keep people safe or will it escalate the situation and behaviour? So it doesn't actually give people back control of their situation often. And we try and have conversations in the training about this, about where, you know, what people's ideas are around the police, why people might go to the police, that idea that they will help regain control over the situation and provide this sense of safety and discuss that that point that often that's not the case in reality. And I think, you know, just to end, to recognise that it is such a complex and complicated discussion to have often um, in my workplace because on the one hand, it's ridiculous to think about putting someone in a cage to stop violence, to use violence to to stop violence happening in the first place. But at the same time, we talk to many people that have chosen to engage with police to keep themselves safe and wanting to also respect those decisions that people have made. And I think at the same time, we can also criticise the system, but have that sensitivity and respect for people and the ways that they've decided to keep themselves safe you know, the way that people have chosen to keep themselves safe through engaging with these systems. In in my work, I'm about three weeks off becoming a qualified social worker. I wouldn't actually say it is really a free choice that sometimes women have. Um, it could be things like they need um, they need money from victim services and the only way that they're going to get that is by getting a police report. Um, so it's often not this free choice to engage with the police either. And I think that that's also really important to be critical of and understand that, like, there is even coercion in our systems that lead to women having to go to the police because that is the only option that's presented to them. Hmm. That um that ties in really nicely with our next question, actually. Yeah, and I think what you said, Monique, like, to use violence to stop violence sums, sums it up pretty well and... um just thinking about how each of you were really highlighting that contradiction and the violence um, from the state and how this is such a flawed approach. The Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Japarung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. One, come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. 
Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 9651-5000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. So the next question kind of going to what you're saying, Georgia, about other services kind of funneling people into contact with the police. So part of the reason uh, the prison industrial complex is strong is that it is intertwined and propped up by so many other sectors and organisations, as has been pointed out. In your experiences, is that relevant to the family violence sector and could coercive control laws operate any differently to existing family violence and gender-based violence laws? Yeah, so sort of as I was saying, an, an example is victim services, which provides victim survivors with one of the things that they can provide them with is financial compensation, um, but also things like psychological services, which I think is fantastic. They're things that can allow a woman to remove herself from um, that situation because money is a huge barrier to that and also provide support in the form of counselling. But that system that is set up is inherently linked to the police because to be able to do that, you need to have a police report. And I think there are countless other examples of that in working with housing, with public housing. If we have a client who needs to move from their housing property because they're in danger, We need evidence. We need countless amounts of evidence. And one of the things that housing will value so much higher than anything that I could write, like a support letter, is a letter from the police or an AVO. It is structured that the police's voice and the police's opinion on things like violence against women is still just held so much higher, not only against like the victim or survivor, but also against other services. Do I think there's a possibility that we could respond to coercive control in a different way? Sure. Obviously, that's why I'm abolitionist. But I do think that at the moment, the way that the legislation is, it's still that, you know, you have to go to the police, you have to prove they have to do an investigation and they have to be satisfied that this has actually happened. So... I really can't see the current laws that are being proposed in New South Wales as operating any differently than the ones that already have, uh, that already exist, where the burden of proof is on the victim and survivor and the police's judgment and their quote-unquote expertise continues to be prioritised over that of women. Yeah, look, I made some notes for this question, but because I was going to, this morning I made this decision that I was going to be very considered in the words that I use. I was going to moderate my language because I really didn't want carceral feminists to come at me for being, for critiquing the fact that they're telling people that women to call the cops when they're in these situations. But, you know, on the 2nd of August in 2014, police responded to a call-out at Miss Dew's house. Her partner had violated an apprehensive violence order. When the cops arrived... They arrested both of them because they realised Miss Do had an outstanding warrant. So Miss Do had done what she'd been told by Family Violence Services to call the cops. And what ended up happening, she was detained. 
and killed in custody. So when people ask me, do we think that it could work differently, it has to bloody work differently. It has to. Because white carceral feminists can sit around all they like and say, call the cops. So for my mob, calling the cops means death. So, yeah, I've gone rogue off my nose. But that's the reality is we have to do differently. We have to do better. And these conversations that we have are all really polite and wonderful. But how mob are dying? Like, we don't actually have the luxury of time to sit around and, you know, kind of muse about whether we can do it differently. We actually have to. Our lives depend on you all doing it differently. Yeah. I've got notes here as well, but I don't know how many of these notes have already kind of been touched on. But something that I thought about with this question was the history of the sector that I'm working in. So whether it's, you know, family violence sector, women's health sector. Um, so that would include, I guess, support workers, health professionals, social workers. And it's not just this particular sector, but looking at this sector, there is this history. It's dominated by white women mainly. Um, and there's re this real history of it being this helping profession and good intentions being the most important part of it. And I think it's still a workforce that's really dominated by often young white women um, who genuinely want to do good, but aren't necessarily asked to have that systemic analysis of their relationship to power. And so it becomes really hard to talk about the harmful effects of the systems we might be upholding through our work and the way that the family violence sector is, um, you know, helping to enact that state violence. You know, always that even now you hear gender as being the main focus. We hear about gender inequality as the main driver. Um, and it's so hard to talk about other forms of violence because it's seen as going off track. You know, if we want to talk about racial violence um, or other types of violence. There's an article that I always come back to by a woman called Connie Burke who talks about in the anti-violence movement, our visions and missions and goals are often stated in terms of what we want to eradicate but rarely articulated as what we want to build. And I think I really see that in this sector. It's all about we want to end this particular violence, but not as much discussion around, well, what do we want to build in its place? Um, and how do we actually build those supportive and loving and equitable relationships that aren't based on systems of oppression? I think if we did ask those questions more in this sector, it would be a lot quicker to that discussion around why criminalisation, incarceration, building more prisons, creating more laws is not the answer or the best response. I think that would be easier to talk about. And we could talk more about things like capitalism and colonisation as being the larger context that this violence is occurring on. It's kind of amazing how we can just reach in and take out this very particular form of violence and look, of, look at it completely out of context and not think about how, you know, the violence that this uh, the colonisation of this land was built on, you know, has not informed all the violence that's come after it. There's such a strong connection there, but it's seen as going off track or, you know, not what we need to focus on right now. Just to talk a little bit about temporary visas specifically, a lot's been written on the additional barriers that women face when they're on a temporary visa. Um, and a lot of family violence workers have spoken quite publicly about feeling quite stuck when supporting women on temporary visas being unsure about what they can actually offer. Um, and they're often referred to as a marginalised group, like many of the groups that we're talking about and that we're members of. But never we discuss, you know, who's actually marginalising them. They weren't inherently marginal. It's really, again, not looking at the wider system that everything is existing in. Yeah, I think so many of the, the barriers that are being faced are around being cut off from things like housing, Centrelink, all the types of financial support, 
and aid that are really needed and that are deserved no matter what your visa status. And it's so clear to me that criminalising coercive control isn't going to just add to the ways that these people are criminalised and can be controlled and manipulated rather than providing them with what's actually needed, which is, you know, safe and stable housing, the right to financial support, uh, medical care, all of these things, regardless of your visa status. I think I just want to um, add as well, because you mentioned this, um, Monique, about um, the way in which like social workers and people in this sector are complicit. And I actually, I don't think it's just the way that the systems are structured. Um, My role as a social worker in becoming a social worker, I've become a mandatory reporter. There are also countless organisations that I will work for that their first option will be to call the police and that if I choose to not call the police, I will actually be going against organisational policy So when we're thinking about the violence of these systems, of police, of prisons, we actually do need to go a bit beyond that as well. And when we start thinking of alternatives, it's not enough to say we're going to replace police with social workers because there are a lot of carceral social workers and there are a lot of social workers who abuse their power. So I think that's also really important that we don't just position the yeah, family violence um, sector as this inherently good force. Like everything, we need to have a critical lens to it and we need to be able to accept community feedback and critical analysis of what we do. Any sort of professionalised service needs to have that uh, analysis put on them. Otherwise, we are just going to be reproducing the systems of policing with a new name. Yeah, and I think that this is sort of tied in with um, a quote that we wanted to bring in from Insight, the network of radical feminists of colour in the US, uh, who did a lot of organising, and this is sort of from their work in the early 2000s. They said the reliance on the criminal justice system has taken power away from women's ability to organise collectively to stop violence and has invested this power within the state. And so thinking about what you were saying, George, about its police and its other services and how they're all working together. And interesting to hear, Monique, your your perspective on, yeah, often white, predominantly white women's positions and then they now have are uh, heading these organisations and it's really hard to, to push for change when you don't have that same position of power. I'm wanting to hear your thoughts on this quote and this sort of issue of when we're always looking up to laws and structures, how this affects our ability to organise within our communities and what it would look like if we did we, we were more engaged instead of looking up or looking around us to our communities to do this kind of work. Uh, I can start because I'm black and these imposed colonial systems, well actually I, I imposed is too soft a word, these forced colonial legal systems were actually designed to erase, brutalise and kill us. So our capacity to organise within them is limited. So The criminal justice system continues to take our lives because in this country, we only have the death penalty if you're black. In this country, there's a two-tiered justice system and my mob rests uncomfortably on the bottom rung. In this country, the people who have done the most harm to my people are not and will never likely be in prison. And prisons and policing are a central part of the settler colonial war machine. The state wields punishment practices as social control weapons. And that's why I'm an abolitionist, right? It's why we're trying to organise 
within this current system and it makes it so difficult because every time a black person speaks up and dissents or speaks back against the system, it puts a direct threat to our life. But quite frankly, how we handle crime or what we consider is a crime is one of the most important civil rights challenges of our time, in my view, because we're at a crucible moment right now. But much of the debate is built on misconceptions um, that we push simple reforms. Activists are pushing simple reforms that rely on the logics of the carceral state, underpinned by carceral feminists who trot out the same answer to every ill, lock them up. And this keeps us on the treadmill of reform. It stops us from engaging in dialogues of curiosity and possibility. And it sends us in inadequate and even counterproductive directions. And I think that this happens for two reasons. I think it's because of racial capitalism and this punishment philosophy that we've all internalised and taken on board. Um, we have this pull to vengeance, retribution and revenge. We're convinced that we will only feel better if we do to someone who has done harm the same that they've done to us. And the system implements punishments against others to sustain, prop up and ensure white capital accumulation and white privilege. So in this country, we see punishments serving as necessary functions to facilitate capital accumulation for white elites and to protect the white privilege of white people. So for people like me, people with lived experience, people with a strong revolutionary conscience, are locked out of these conversations or are relegated to the most extreme parts of the margins. And, I mean, I'm kind of okay with being in the margins, mostly, because that's where the cool people dwell, right? But let's not forget that criminal law reflects and serves elite interests. They hold the power. They become the agents of social control. And so racial capitalism really impacts our ability to organise and to be active in these spaces because it victimises a significant segment of society based on the need to control and perpetrate harm on a portion of the population for gain. So for people like me, it's not just the reliance on the criminal justice system that inhibits my activism or my ability to organise in these spaces. It's racial capitalism and colonisation so that every time I raise my lived experience black voice, I put my liberty and life at risk. Anika, if you want to go, as um, always after uh, Tabitha speaks, I like to sit in my thoughts for a second. And uh, Yeah, I feel like so much was offered there, and I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I think, you know, you covered off so many points. I guess with that question, I was thinking about, I guess, yeah, ways to centre people who are incarcerated in our organising at all levels. And, you know, I speak as someone who hasn't been incarcerated, but I think often in the movements and organising that I've been a part of, you know, that's not something that's always been considered, um, how people can engage in that organising um, even when they are in prison, knowing that the population is growing. I also think about, you know, what it means to have movements and to be organising and what liberation will look like. And I think, you know, there's sometimes an idea that it's going to be some really big dramatic moment where suddenly we'll achieve liberation. But for me, it's been really helpful to think about the small moments and what I can achieve in these small moments of organising. So for me, like opportunities to create spaces or have interactions which can embody these principles of abolition or actively challenge those larger, larger systems that go unacknowledged so often. 
and thinking about, you know, where is the good work already happening and what can I do to support it rather than that idea of I have to start the work or I have to, like, be leading the work or own the work, which I think can so often happen. Um, and it is a really colonial idea that you have to be the first and you have to be inventing everything new and ignoring, you know, as we were saying, the black and indigenous um, activists that have been doing this work for hundreds of years. Um, it's not anything new. Yeah, so I guess that was the, the main thing I was thinking to add to what's already been said. Yeah, I, I think as well, um, I'm sort of thinking of an example from um, sort of my practice um, working within this sector about the way in which the power has been concentrated away from women and away from community into the state. And I was reading recently about the, the development of women's shelters, especially within Sydney. And often what would happen is um, the community would identify that there was a woman who was facing um, violence in her home and someone would literally go to her house with her, grab everything they could and run, and they would do that together. I can't do that now. If I were to do that um, in my job, I would be uh, unprofessional. I would probably be fired. A lot of people would have a lot of problems with it. But what I could do is I could call the police and ask them to come with me and a client uh, for 15 minutes. That's all the time they'll give you, 15 minutes, to grab her stuff and go. We have given in so many ways power to the police, just in as simple as that, that we need to ask the police's permission to escort us to a woman's home so she can get her belongings. In what world is that more effective? There are so many women that I could call on that would be a supportive, brilliant group of people who would come and keep a woman safe if they needed to do that. But doing that would be unprofessional. But calling cop, that's not unprofessional. That's actually doing the right thing. And I think so much of carceral system systems has embedded that logic into us that if we go outside of the state or if we go outside the police to solve our problems and to solve harm, actually what we're doing is unprofessional when really what we're doing is actually going back to the grassroots and going back to ways of building community that have existed long before the police have. That's such a relevant example, Georgia, of how restrictive social work is and and how that power is taken away. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bomb supply on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs. Org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Community Radio and you are listening to a broadcast of our panel event from last week, 
called Safety for Who, Abolitionist Perspectives on Coercive Control. Yeah, we want to really get to this whole thing of, you know, where to from here if we don't want to constantly have this have this issue of police having this power to legitimize violence. Just before we get to that, though, I do want to squeeze in this question on the on the carceral feminist critique, which has been sort of brought up a bit. Yeah, critique, Georgia, you you wrote a bit about this this whole issue of that this critique that abolitionists are nihilistic, and so abolition becoming synonymous with nihilism. And I'm wanting to hear from each of you about about this critique and your thoughts, and how would you reframe this way of thinking, you know, for the carceral feminists? I yeah, I actually just read this article recently in preparation for this panel. I hadn't actually read it prior to that. Um, and I was really interested in this use of the term nihilistic um, and what they meant by this word. And for me, it kind of seemed like it was being used as this way to talk about a violent approach, like a lawlessness approach, like something that's going to create chaos and disorder and really creating fear. So saying that people, these people, abolitionists, want to get rid of everything that's keeping you safe. They want to overnight get rid of intervention orders, change things so you can't prosecute anyone, not even serial rapists and murderers. You know, there's these real fear tactics of saying these people don't care for you. Um, and I feel like it's really dangerous to frame abolition in this way. And also to me, you know, it's not funny, but it's kind of the opposite of what I think abolition actually is. And so it's, you know, quite ironic. But, um, you know, it's also described alongside being violent and chaotic as also defeatist. So this idea that there's a lack of care there at the same time um, and we don't care what happens. And so to talk about what prison abolition actually has meant to me, which I think is the direct opposite, it's, you know, a political vision about eliminating imprisonment, policing and surveillance and creating lasting internal alternatives. And it's really about reducing harm. And it's, you know, believing that we can do so much more to name and address the root causes of poverty, homelessness, mental health and violence, looking at that larger context of colonisation that the violence is happening in, seeing that link between family violence and those larger systems of, you know, that have stolen this land and continue this genocide against Aboriginal people. It's, you know, a process of strategically allocating or reallocating resources and responsibility away from these institutions and towards more community-based models of safety, support and prevention. Um, and the aim is really about building life-sustaining systems that are going to reduce, prevent and better address harm. You know, like I was saying before, the, the mainstream anti-violence movement really focuses on what we want to get rid of, but as much about what we want to build as well. And I think that's the part that's not really given much time when we talk about abolition, how we want to build life-affirming institutions because we can see this violence that's happening. So I guess to reframe it in how I see it, it's not defeatist, it's not nihilistic, it's, it's wanting to prevent harm, to intervene on harm, to think about processes that are actually going to work instead of causing more harm. And something that we were talking about just before we went live is that when people dismiss abolitionists for not caring about victims or safety, I feel like they're forgetting that we're also the victims and survivors of that violence. We're not talking from this neutral observer perspective. When you look at abolitionists, they're so often talking from lived experience, either lived experience of themselves or their communities, or they're working in roles where every day, you know, they're coming face to face with the violence of this system if it's not something that they were born into. So, yeah, I think it's just wild to me that it's been reframed in this way. And 
I was really excited to see that this panel came together because, yeah, to me it's it's the exact opposite. Yeah, I feel like, as I said at the beginning, my politics and the reason I'm an abolitionist is because I'm optimistic. Sometimes I think that perhaps or other people think that I'm perhaps naively so, and I think that critique often comes from this idea that I don't know what harm is. And I do. I know what harm is. I've lived harm and I've seen it in my communities. But I think abolition is optimistic and I, I can't help but, but smile about the ideas and the possibilities of what abolition offers. I think I, I might just read it out because it will say it better than probably I can now, but um, I had the privilege of writing an article with um, my sister Marley and in response to the idea that we are defeatist and nihilistic about the ability of the justice system to protect women, we would say that as opposition, as opponents to the criminalisation of coercive control, this does not stem from pessimism. Instead, our resistance to it has developed from a thorough understanding of the inherent oppressive nature of policing and the criminal justice system, in addition to the limits of the system in responding to deeper social issues. Abolitionist feminism demands of us as women and people deeply embedded in our communities an optimism in our own ability to respond to violence without reproducing harm. Modern policing and incarceration have become so naturalised that there is an immense difficulty in imagining and conceptualising how violence could be addressed outside these systems. Abolition's optimism and creativity is situated within our ability to imagine alternatives outside the disempowering hegemonic systems that exist. So, yeah, I, I'm not a nihilist about the criminal justice system. Uh, I'm a realist. I understand what it is. But everything that I do is embedded in the idea that we, as part of the communities that we exist in, can do things better. Yeah, I love that. And I thought this was a really interesting question. And I actually thought quite long and hard about this one. And I didn't want to just sort of say... You were not nihilistic. I wanted to consider where that sort of view has come from. And I, I made some notes to sort of guide my thinking on this because I hadn't actually really unpacked this before in my mind. But I guess we can use nihilism to diagnose the problem with the system. But I don't think nihilism can take us beyond that initial diagnosis. I think nihilism fails at the crucial task of, I guess, establishing a theory of the relationship between the ideology and the material conditions from which the harm is produced. If I want to put that simply, nihilism might accurately point out the problem, but it's ill-equipped to explain what the source of the problem is, nor does it adequately encompass the spirit of abolition. So nihilism actually restricts our movement. And by that I mean nihilism settles by saying if the problem is then the solution, if, if that is the problem, then the solution must be the opposite. Therefore, our task becomes onerously negating that endlessly. And that solutions can never be adequate because it responds to an ideolo ideological issue at the level of ideology. And so in my view, fighting ideology with counter-ideology rather than eliminating and reshaping the material conditions from which the first ideology emerges keeps us just chasing our tails. 
And, you know, for me, abolition is so much more than just a movement that seeks to dismantle, destroy and tear down the prison industrial system, as both Georgia and Monet said. Abolition is a way of living and breathing. It's life-giving and it's about love and it's about loving people beyond who we want them to be. And whenever I say that, people think I'm being quaint or I'm being, I don't know, like I'm fetishising justice as some sort of imagined utopia that's well out of reach. But I... I really just want us to challenge the ubiquitous belief that there are throwaway people, that there are disposable people. And I, I think that this criticism around this idea that we just want to love people a little bit more, it's really strange to me that people find that um, so threatening. But abolition is absolutely a building project, as Monique said. It's focused on creating a world focused on abundance and healing, not scarcity and harm. It's about centering community as George just said, and it's about a way of living and being and doing that shapes life rather than takes life. So I think I can understand where people might conflate nihilism with abolition, but they're wrong. <laughs> I'll say that unequivocally, but I can see, you know, that their point, and that's why I wanted to address where I think that the limits of nihilism are in the abolition movement. And that, yes, they, they might be there to diagnose a problem, but abolition is what's going to take us through and see us forward and, and enable us to live and breathe. Yeah, I think that is pretty spot on in terms of saying that loving, the the critique that loving people is nihilistic I and mean, refusing to see people as disposable as nihilistic is such a strange argument. Speaking of ideologies, we actually have a question from the chat and maybe we might bring it in here and it's for you, Tabitha, but for the other panellists as well. Love to hear your thoughts on whether abolition and socialism and First Nations sovereignty are part of the same movement? Interesting question. I think that, as Aboriginal people, we've been doing abolition work for 232 years. So we've been fighting the enslavement and incarcerating of our people. We've been fighting against a system that causes the premature death of our people. We've been fighting a system that steals our kids, cages our kids, strip searches our women... So I think First Nations justice is first and foremost. I think we have been abolitionists forever. I mean, I think that's why, as Aboriginal people, we don't have a problem imagining abolition because we carry within our, gen- our DNA genetic memory of a time before police, cages, shackles, prisons, courts. So I think it all intersects, yes, but I, I don't think it's part of the same movement at all because I don't think people stand with First Nations people consistently and half measures by all of the white activists around us are actually killing us. You know, so when there was an uprising internationally, as there should have been, about the lynching of George Floyd Jr. on the streets of Minneapolis, and we all of a sudden saw all these young white socialists in this country, if I was contacted by several of them, who were all raising their fists in the air and saying Black Lives Matter, I kind of paused, did a double take and looked around and thought, Who's black lives? Because I wasn't sure that our black lives had ever mattered unless in service or sacrifice to the colony. So, yes, I think those movements intersect. But do I think that the commitment is consistent across those movements? No. In fact, I would say that the struggle for First Nations justice encompasses all those movements. And really, if every white socialist or ally or so-called accomplice stood with us consistently consistently to fight for our liberation because our version of liberation and freedom has the capacity to free the coloniser also. 
So when we fight for justice, we fight for our lands, for our kids, for our ancestors, our old people and our future. But we fight so that people can continue to live on this country sustainably well and healthy. Sorry, that was a really long answer to a question. Yes, they intersect, but not consistently. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about how, you know, all the things that I'm influenced by and how, you know, like you were saying, um, I just think Aboriginal sovereignty needs to be the basis of all this work. Um, and it's really clear how linked in that should be and why that's the case. But in reality, what actually happens through organising, um, it's not always the case. You know, me as a Muslim, as someone who, you know, um, has really socialist ideas, is anti-capitalist, um, for me, it all fits together, you know, and for me, the focus, you know, should be Aboriginal sovereignty and nothing is at odds there. But the reality of um, what I see around me and the communities that I'm a part of, it's not always recognised by everyone. So a lot of the work has been um, around talking about that more within my communities, how I see those links, how I see prison abolition as being so linked to the fight for justice that's such a big part of Islam, um, but not something that, you know, everyone that I know currently agrees with. Yeah, and it's it's sort of, I guess, coming back to what you were saying, Tabitha, like the potential is there, but the trends kind of, the trends of issues really kind of cause that issue of the inconsistencies with political engagement, and it seems like an important thing to raise here. I might um t- just take us to another question about the sort of like the practical side of abolition, and I'll bring in, so Juliet wasn't able to make it tonight, but also does a lot of really important work in this space, and she wrote, she's written that the enactment of a law is more than words in a statute. They represent a social force with immense power to misdirect lives. They rarely heal and they rarely redeem. That's the sobering news. So my question is, what does a system that heals and redeems look like for each of you and, and in practical terms as well? I always get really perplexed when people ask this question, and I guess for everyone who's on the panel as abolitionists, we're constantly being asked, well, what would you do instead? I feel like these questions are really lazy, to be honest, and they totally miss the point of what abolition is all about. So abolition is about building community, about creating community-based solutions. And when I talk about community, I don't talk about big, homogenous groups of people. I'm talking about real, localised responses to harm. So it's really hard for me to stand up here and say, this is what I think I would like to see happen in a practical, tangible sense, other than to talk about the principles I would like to see enacted, so communities of care, radical reciprocity, all of those things. I can talk more broadly about the principles. But if I sat on a panel here today as an abolitionist and told you what I think should happen in your community to address harm or how family violence services across the whole country should respond to harm, I would be no better than the politicians and the colonialists right now telling us exactly what justice should look like in this country. So I know that that frustrates people, but I think that this urgency and this sense of desperation for answers or really clear sort of examples of models of programs that might be working in some obscure place in Canada that we want to replicate here, there's that sense of desperation for that, but I can't give it to you. And I think if I did then I would be no better than what's happening right now because I really want to see us build community. I want us to see us to build a more nuanced view of harm and a more nuanced view of how to address that harm. And I think that that's what's really exciting about abolition is that we all have an opportunity to engage in these conversations around 
what is possible. So dialogues of curiosity I talk about all the time. This is, this is a chance for us all to be involved, not have one person tell you what it should look like. Like I said, I know that's frustrating, but that's exciting too, right? Yeah, completely. I completely agree. I think um, people very much jump to answers and wanting answers, and I, and I get it. I absolutely do, and I don't think it's a, it's a wrong thing, but I, I do think sometimes sitting in that unknown and sitting in that discomfort is a really important place to be. Um, I think in terms of what a system that heals could look like, I think that we do actually need to understand the diversity of harm and the diversity of the ways that people can respond to harm and the fact is that what could heal me might not heal someone else that had a similar harm caused against them and so what I'm saying there is not that we have this sort of neoliberal idea of an individualized response but rather that we actually do let people who have been harmed speak to their own harm and speak to what's happened to them and what they feel that they need from their community to actually heal. Um, and I think that will look really differently for a lot of people. But I think something that I generally think is really important and something that I've found quite healing when harm has been caused against me or when I've caused harm is an acknowledgement that that harm has been caused, whether it was intended to or not that it was caused. Um, and I think that we need to look and realise that the criminal justice system, prisons, um, never ask that of people. Um, sure, people can plead guilty. A lot of people plead guilty for reasons other than guilt or remorse or acknowledgement of harm. So trying to, you know, see systems that actually do acknowledge harm. And, and again, this is not about just the people who have caused sexual violence or physical harm or coercive control. It's a lot bigger than that. Um, it's about acknowledging that actually we do all cause harm to each other and that is part of what it means to be in a community. Um, and so it's not about saying that these specific people have caused more harm or worse harm than someone else but rather collectively coming to the acknowledgement that this is something that we do, but it's not something that we have to reproduce. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. Something that I was thinking about as an example of a time where I felt that kind of hope and excitement has been um, in the support worker training. We run a workshop where Lauren Caulfield comes in from the Police Accountability Project to talk about asset mapping and safety planning that could think more creatively about what we could do besides relying on law enforcement in hard times um, and brings in some examples of when we could we might feel like we have no choice but to involve the police and then gets the group to think about to really articulate what the police what they feel the police are providing in that moment like what are those you know positive things that you're looking for the reasons why we might go to the police um, and considering if there are other assets or ways that we could get those things and so as a group, everyone works together to kind of do an asset mapping of safety planning of ways that we could draw on family, friendship networks, um, immediate neighbourhood or the broader community. And the aim is not to say, so now we're never going to call the police or now we don't need to call the police, um, but to, to start doing that creative thinking about what could the alternatives look like. And I feel like it's such an amazing workshop because it does leave people feeling really excited and amazed at what they've come up with together, feeling really connected and like the possibilities have expanded a bit. And, you know, it's not at all providing 
a, like a full solution to the system that we're in, but it's getting people into that mindset of thinking creatively and, and being hopeful and thinking about ways that we can build stronger communities to support people who are experiencing harm. Can I just add to that because it's all so important? And I think the other thing that none of us have really touched on is that abolition is not just about responding to harm. It's about changing the conditions that lead to harm taking place. And I think that's one of the problems I have with, you know, the, the sector right now is that it's just responsive. And I actually want to create an environment where these things don't happen in the first place. And that requires, um, say, family violence services or social workers to be always doing two-pronged work, supporting the people who have been harmed but also working to change the conditions in society and to build community. I also really like the idea of it not just being focused on the victim and the perpetrator, but also every single one of us in community actually considering, considering and confronting our own complicity in all of this as well. Because as George just said, we are all complicit when there's violence happening in our community, whether we are the perpetrator or the victim. If we are standing by, if we're walking past it, if we're working in a service where we observe it and we stay silent, we're all complicit. And I think as a community, we need to take some responsibility for the harm being meted about in our spaces too. Yeah, that would really change things. I'd, ima I'd imagine the sort of the community approach if everyone took responsibility. And just, yeah, sort of seeing kind of as all of you were pointing out, the sort of the calling for nuance and critiquing that top-down approach and that hierarchy, hierarchical approach, which, yeah, does seem completely antithetical to prison abolition. It's also interesting, Monique, to hear how you've applied that at WIRE and apply abolitionist thinking to scenarios as a way to get people to take, to do that thinking themselves. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. We've got another question from the chat, and it's actually sort of, I guess, thinking about what would happen if coercive control was criminalised. How do you think that that would play out if that happened? What would it look like? Yeah, I can speak a little bit to that. I guess... First of all, I might say what I think won't happen and what won't happen is coercive control won't end, just in the same way that um, domestic violence and sexual assault are criminalised, but that still occurs. Coercive control will continue to occur despite its criminalisation. Really important, I think, to acknowledge that. Some of the things that I think could occur that make me very critical of um, this is that I think there will be a real problem with perpetrator misidentification and this is something that we already see when police are called, when a victim survivor is reaching out to get that help and that support, they are misidentified as a perpetrator as well 
And this happens for a few different reasons. Uh, it could happen because they have retaliated with violence and then so the police don't view it as domestic violence. They see it as two people committing violence against each other. Um, it could happen because the victim survivor's English skills less than the perpetrators and the perpetrator uses their skills as a perpetrator to manipulate that situation. So there, that's one thing that I'm really concerned about and that I could really see continuing to happen and to expand. In terms of um, a few other things, I haven't dived into this too deeply, but I've speaking to some of my um, sisters and comrades about um, the effect that it will have on disabled women. And I think there could be a huge issue in the way in which this, the introduction of this legislation will just completely neglect the abuse that disabled women experience. And so, again, this isn't really something that I guess the bill will do, but in a sense it is because it's continuing to solidify the exclusion of disabled women and their experiences of abuse. A few ways that I could see this happening is the way in which the legislation refers to intimate partner violence, so that is by a someone you're in a relationship with, and my reading of that and a reading of some other women that I've spoken to is that that will exclude coercive control that happens in domestic settings like group homes from uh, employers to um, disabled women. And another way that it will exclude disabled women is just their ability to access this system. So, yeah, there are a few, I guess, um, major things that I can see that this legislation will actually create and will solidify problems. I have a huge problem with all the, the criminalising this because the creation of any new offence in this field squarely places women within the domain of criminal justice. And for Aboriginal women, that is lethal and deadly. Um, so... People are thinking that this law is going to protect us, but it fails to take into account what response women in violent relationships might actually want from the system and what they might receive in reality. Because the reality for our mob is that criminal, when criminal law tries to intervene on our behalf, the more challenges it poses for us, whether that's contact with the cops, having to front court, giving evidence in trials, sitting in cells while they work out with the perpetrator or the victim. It all creates hurdles and has the potential to cause us harm. The other thing for me is how I don't want to provide any extension to the power of police. How can we honestly trust the police with these extended powers, which are actually going to rely on a high level of discretion and a keen eye to identify patterns of abuse and a good theoretical and practical understanding of gender and family violence? I don't trust police to do that, and I, I feel that what people might feel that this is a helpful thing to be doing, I, I don't at all think it is, particularly for our mob. Yeah, I don't really have much to add on what's already been said, um, and I feel like, yeah, for me it just seems like it will just further criminalise people who are experiencing harm already. You know, already people are criminalised for a failure to protect you know, to protect their children when they're experiencing abuse themselves or they're being charged with kidnapping because they took their child away from an abuser and they're undocumented or on a particular visa. 
So, you know, you see the ways that it's used to criminalize migration patterns like it's already we already see those patterns being used in that way. So it just seems like an ex, an extension of what's already occurring. So we are for most Aboriginal people, we are in these coercively controlling relationships with the state. And I ask myself, where are the pastoral feminists in fighting for our liberty and freedom from that? You know, if, if we if we're not doing that on behalf of Aboriginal people in the state, then we should not be doing it within the homes. And I think um, I just saw on the chat that popped up there, um, someone made a really good point about the new laws will most likely also fail to acknowledge the severe trauma often caused by coercive control. And I completely agree with that. I think, you know, there's someone they talk to that feel a sense of justice from um, their, their perpetrator being sentenced. But the majority of women that I talk to survive as victims. That isn't the point where they heal. Trauma continues past that. And these systems of just criminalising someone is not actually addressing the trauma, is not actually supporting women to heal. So if we're really talking about how we want to care for women and we want to protect women, why aren't we campaigning for more funding to trauma services? Why aren't we campaigning for free or affordable housing, all these things that will make a material difference to the lives of women. Yeah, it's pretty staggering to think about what would happen if all the money that did go to police was actually given to services and organisations to address um, some of these issues. It would be, it would look extremely different. We hear um, creative resistance get used a bit. I think Insight have also used that term before. And I'm sort of interested to hear your thoughts on creative resistance around prison abolition and creative resistance in response to this campaign to criminalise coercive control and what that looks like for you? I mean, I can talk a little bit about it. I mean, I'm not sure about this idea of, you know, these sort of terminologies around creative resistance, but I think it is about being creative to provide finding solutions, creative and effective ways to deal with things. And so if we want to think about coercive control, I... I don't want to talk about what are we going to do instead, as I said before, or I would rather talk about what are we trying to transform. Are we trying to make it so that people don't harm each other again? Are we trying to make it so that this one person is incapacitated indefinitely? What's the goal of what we're doing? And I think if the goal of what we are doing is that we don't want anybody harmed again and we don't want anyone else to be abused or violated, then the job ahead of us isn't to figure out how to incapacitate someone better. The job ahead of us is to figure out what are the conditions to, that led to that person perpetrating that harm. For me, that's what's creative. That's what's radical, which is strange that it's so radical, but apparently it is, you know. I mean, building a different kind of prison isn't going to make anyone safer. Arming the cops with different kinds of weapons isn't going to make any safer, anyone safer. Employing more blackfellas to be cops is definitely not going to make anyone safer. And swapping one institution for another, like social workers for cops, is definitely not going to make us safer. We just cannot waste any more time on replacing one violent system with another. What we have to do is take really seriously the question of what is causing harm to happen in our community in the first place. And to me, that's the creative bit. That's the that's the creative solutions that we can come up with because that's obviously as I said that's the beauty of abolition 
being able to take a more nuanced view of harm and develop these kind of local community-based solutions and approaches which repair harm through accountability practices rather than punishment. Things that enable us to respond simultaneously to individual and systemic violence, to transform communities and eradicate structures that enable the violence in the first place. That's the creative bit of work I want to do. Yeah, I think um, creative resistance is um, quite an interesting term because I guess the things that I see or the, the building blocks of abolition aren't really that creative. They're, they're things that are quite simple, right? They, they are knowing your neighbours, knowing, building relationships with the people in your community, things that have been done before and that can be done again. I think, though, I, I understand why people sort of use this word creative because of the way in which carceral systems and neoliberal responses to violence and harm have just so pushed us into thinking that we can only respond in one certain way. So the idea of actually, like, building friendships, relationships and communities somehow does seem like this creative alternative. Really, what they are is just going outside the limits of what has been provided to us by the state. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting way of looking at things. Yeah, I think that's interesting how you frame that and that it is actually simple as opposed to this, like, crazy out-of-the-box thinking. I've got another question from the chat to throw. How do we think about people who work within crisis services where policies often require us to involve police in various contexts? It goes back to Georgia, what Georgia was saying before, is that often these places, their policies require their practitioners to call the police. But I think that we need to have a, a, a bigger and broader conversation in this country and locally around what what do we think constitutes safety because so much of the things that we put in place to keep workers safe don't keep all workers safe and they definitely don't keep clients safe. And most of us come to these professions with this idea of do no harm when in actual fact the work that we do continues to do harm. But because because these organisations and systems and processes are about managing risk and not managing people, and that's where we make the, the fundamental flaw, right? We we take the people out of this, and it's all about risk. So I I don't have any particular opinions on people in those systems. I have an issue with the system, and I think that's what we've got to continually be challenging. Is why I mean. Debbie Kilroy talks about Sisters Inside and she gave a talk only today talking about that they have never once pulled the cops on anyone. Now, Sisters Inside deals with people who have been criminalised. People the system say are the most dangerous people. So if you listen to the system, their clientele must be the most harmful and their work is the most at risk, but they've not once pulled the police. And I think if an organisation like that can do that, what the hell is stopping every other single organisation? And if you are working in an organisation and you are required to call the cops on your clients that you care for and know will be put at risk by that action, you need to be asking some questions. You need to be doing the dual work of supporting your client and actually feeding up to the system and saying, this isn't okay, I'm not going to work in this way because I'm not going to perpetrate harm onto the very people I seek to serve. I think 
If you are not doing that two-pronged work, then you are upholding and are complicit in a system that victimises and criminalises people and harms people. So speak up, stand up, raise your voice and be consistent. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is just so true. And from a personal perspective, um, I've said quite loudly at my university that there are just a number of places that I will never work. And people really see that as me somehow limiting myself. But the fact is that if there were all these organisations and all of them did require me to call the police, I wouldn't work there anymore. And that's a commitment that I make. And the fact is that I don't think I'm very special. And I don't mean to say that as a way to put me down. But I don't think my presence in these organisations is going to do something so radical. What I would prefer to do if I could not work within those systems and not do something as simple as not call the police on my clients, then I'm not going to work in those systems and I will go find another job to do that doesn't involve me having to call the police. And I don't think that actually should be such a radical thing because, as we said, there's a reason that we got into this profession for a lot of people is to not do harm. And if my workplace is forcing me to do that, then I'm going to withdraw my labour. It's as simple as that. And I encourage other people to do it too because if everyone withdraws their labour, then who is going to be the person who's calling the police? Um, I guess I really wanted to add that I really appreciate reframing it as being about worker safety as well and the kind of burnout that it can lead to when you're being asked to act in ways that are so opposed to your values and your ethics. And I feel like Vicky Reynolds talks about that a lot and we discuss that in the training, but what it feels like to be asked to work in ways that are opposed to your values. And I, you know, Georgia, your point made about knowing where your line is, I think is so important. So it might look different for different people. And I have my own line that I know that I won't cross, but being honest with yourself about what that is. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the point where you're like, I refuse to do this, I'm going to walk. Um, and there are lots of things that might inform that. But I think we, like has been said, we are all complicit. And so there's no possibility of just being this kind of neutral um, observer who's just here and knows it's wrong, but they're just being a part of it, hoping for something better to happen down the track. We really have to think about the options that we have at every moment to act in different ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, that walking away is a stance in and of itself, and that could actually create change within an organisation. I've got one more question I reckon we could we, we could squeeze in before we wrap up tonight. How do we remove the funding allocated by the state in the way that the state prescribes so that we can help more people in relation to organisations, the way organisations need to support coercive control laws to be able to get the funding to support women who want to leave? Is there another way? I think it's the age-old problem. And I, 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 get, I get why organisations stick to the business that they're doing because that's what they get the funding for. So as an Aboriginal woman, there is funding available to organisations because of my dysfunction, you know, because of the gaps between my life expectancy and other people. So it's kind of, there are people making the careers off the backs of black dysfunction and deficits, which is caused by the very systems that fund them to do this work. So I don't know what the answer is. I mean, the answer surely has to lie and if you don't want to be receiving money to continue a system that continues to do harm, you are not working to make your organisation and your profession unnecessary anymore, then you are complicit too. 
you've got to raise your voice. We all as a community have to start to say that we're not happy for all these Band-Aid solutions. I mean, it, it just horrifies me to think that people are happy that they might, you know, say, be a prison officer or a social worker in prison for the rest of their life. What they're actually saying is that they're happy to keep doing work because people will continue to be criminalised and being behind bars. I mean, I just, I think that there's no problem and no harm in taking money to do good work. You need to be really clear about what conditions are attached to that funding. If you, in good conscience, cannot take the government money to do the government's will and the government's bidding because you don't feel comfortable with it, then you shouldn't be taking it, you shouldn't be working for those organisations. It really is quite simple. Because we make a whole heap of excuses around this business. We say, oh, but Aboriginal people are dying way earlier, we have to be able to do this. No, 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 no. You all have to be standing with us to change the conditions which are creating this. Putting an extra podiatrist on at the, the, the clinic is not actually changing my life or the life of my children or the grandchildren I will eventually have. So I get that it's complex and I get that we need services right now, but unless you're doing really hard work to make your services unnecessary, your profession unnecessary, then you are part of the problem. Yeah, I think there's also um, the possibility for sort of subtle resistance at times. And, of course, as I said, there are times where subtlety should be thrown out the door and you should get up and leave. But in terms of sort of funding, there might be specific ways in which funding are channeled within your organisations. But trying to find that flexibility of where you can put it elsewhere, the different ways in which you can support women to actually address their needs I'm obviously being a little bit vague about this for sort of a reason, but I just think try and think a little bit creatively in things like Radical Social Work, a book from the 1970s. There were all these different ways that people would take the system and just try and subtly move things for the benefit of their client. And I think, though, it's important to say that that subtle little movement can't exist without the big picture stuff. And you can't just settle for doing the subtle things. But on the day-to-day, if there's little ways you can get organisational funding and channel it for what your clients or women really need, go for that. Thanks, Georgia. I think that might be a a great place to leave it. Um, And congrats on the social work, by the way. I mean, I think, yeah, from all of your comments, it's really clear that there is so much work here at all levels and work that we can all do. So thank you for sharing all of that and for the for the work and thoughtfulness that would have gone into your preparation for this discussion tonight and your emotional labour as well in being here. This will be broadcast on Tuesday Breakfast and Women on the Line, so it will be circulating on the 3CR airwaves, so please check it out. And we really look forward to continuing this conversation. If anyone wants to, to message us, to let us know their thoughts, we'd love to hear from you, so send us a message on our Tuesday Breakfast Facebook page. But that's, that's it for tonight. Thank you so much to our guests and to everyone for turning up for this event. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line, 
Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.